It doesn't take long talking with Dennis Murphy to find out that he has led many lives. Vietnam War was on and I didn't have a rich daddy, so I had to go into the army. From his home in Old Toon Gabby, New South Wales, we talk with Dennis about the unspoken form of commedia dell'arte puppetry, his work as a ventriloquist, and his many obsessions, including vaudeville, coffee, and storytelling. I shall fall astounded with a collection of rarities not often seen in this day and age, an entire flea shrubless. Join Dennis and I now, here on Talking Sock. Welcome to Talking Sock, your one-stop shop for all things puppetry arts and practitioners. My name is Pete Davidson, and today I'm joined by Dennis Murphy from Old Toongami, New South Wales. Dennis, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. I'm flattered. Dennis, why puppets? With the puppetry, it started off just... As toys, when I was growing up, the television was full of full of puppets and ventriloquists and all that sort of thing. So I always had an interest, and I enjoyed, you know, just just playing with them. Used to do. We had a basement. I grew up in, in the states in Iowa. We had a basement under the house, and I do we do puppet shows on Saturday, two cents admission. You know, we were terribly organized. We didn't know anything. The only things I knew about show business were the old vaudeville films on rerun on television. So. I had no no background at all. I, I went to Catholic primary school where we spent an inordinate amount of time praying to God and praising him and going to mass. And there was no time for sports and no time for arts and crafts. So it was just toys, basically, until much later in life. First puppet I had was off television. It was one of Sherry Lewis. She was on, had a TV show. I had a lamb chop. I think that was my first puppet. I didn't make puppets because, again, as I said, it's no arts and crafts. So I didn't know how to make puppets. So there were toys, bought toys, basically. So every Christmas, so what do you want for Christmas? I said, puppets. What do you want for your birthday? Puppets. What do you want for lunch? Puppets. Everything was puppets. But just as toys, because I didn't have that, that sort of background. It wasn't until later that I started getting more seriously into puppets, doing character puppets. and that Just as party pieces, nothing specific. It wasn't until I moved to Sydney that I got the chance to go and do some you know, classes in uh, acting and storytelling and mime and all of that to uh, and then bring all that into put that into the puppetry so it was a, it was a long road there with uh, italy in between for a few years and adolescence and so I had an interest in female of the species i had me distracted for a few years and then i got the travel bug and started traveling all over the place and then i got into buddhism <laughs> so it's not all over the place basically yeah I first met you, Dennis, after seeing your absolutely hilarious vaudeville-style show, The Allenby's Famous Flea Circus. I mean, it's a puppet show of sorts with this beautiful automata set that you've created, but these completely invisible characters played by the fleas. I really want to know more about how that show was developed and if you could tell me sort of why that style of replicating, I think, your vaudeville's origins. Allenby's Famous Flea Circus started out as a, a small tea chest that I picked up when I was traveling around Victoria. And I picked up some greeting cards that were in the style that it was after. I wrote the script. I gave the tea chest and the card to uh, Richard Hart, Dream Puppets in Melbourne, and he built it. I just said, you know, I need I need this, a type rope that sags when Miss Boom Boom walks across it. And I need a high dive with a bit of a splash when she lands in a tank and a seesaw that would go up and down. My original idea was that I would perform as a puppet and have someone else manipulating all the movement in the circus. But it was a bit impractical having two people. I decided I would play the ringmaster instead of had a, a puppet based on W.C. Fields, who was a comedian in the 30s in America. With the character, it was me playing it, not a puppet, just standing there being naked without a puppet in front of me. So I've used the Down East accent from Northeast America, Maine and New Hampshire, that sort of area, where P.T. Barnum came from, basically. And I used a lot of Dickensian language and I set it all up to come across as this character based on Artemis Allenby, is based on Artemis Ward, who was a comic orator of 19th century. It's a long story. <laughs> I don't know how much detail I want to get into, but... Uh, they had a, a, a whole circuit of lectures in America, sort of adult education thing. Uh, and they would go on circuits like Charles Dickens came and did it, Oscar Wilde did it, Mark Twain did it. But it wasn't long before, of course, the Satyrs got a hold of it. So Adams Ward was one of the first ones to come along and have this <laughs> slideshow. He had a, a roofless tent and he would charge people admission to come into the roofless tent to witness a lunar eclipse, things like that that were just ridiculous stuff. And he had a wonderful delivery, apparently, from what I've read about it wonderful delivery. So I based it on that character and that accent and that Dickensian thing of, of that era 
basically. I shall forth astound you with a collection of rarities not often seen in this day and age. An entire flea shrukyos. Magnificent and glorious in its costume appearance, disregardless of expense. It was a party piece for a long time. Then I put it into a storytelling program that I was doing for the state library. So I used to tour, and I'd see all the libraries closed every evening, weekend, uh, nothing happening anywhere. So I went to the state library and said, you know, how about I devise a program with different styles of storytelling so they could take it up as training for the librarians? Because at the time, they were flying them in from the country for a day and trying to teach them all this stuff. They paid me this standards actors award, and I would do this 45-minute program with different types of storytelling. But I finished it off with the flea circus, so they could advertise the flea circus coming to town. And that made the, made the local paper every time, every time. That would fill in my weekends, give me things to do, and, and in the evenings. In those days, you know, like you're in Walker Walker for three days doing shows, and have a whole week in Broken Hill. So it was quite crazy to fill it in. Also, I had my eye on a puppet festival I wanted to go to in Italy. And so I said all the fees for the play circus were set aside in a separate account to pay for the, the trip to Italy, to go to Italy for a couple of months and catch some festivals. So it's been very good to me. And then I performed it here and there. And I did it at the Unima, International Unima Festival in 08 in Perth. And it got seen by some scouts from Singapore. And they got me a couple of couple of trips to Singapore. I got to spend the first time on 10 days in Singapore. It was great. So it's been it's been good to me. But it did sit for years and years, you know, waiting to find this little niche in the world. I need to ask you about your life. <laughs> it's been quite a journey already, even before you got into puppets, as you've mentioned. Could you give us a brief timeline here and take us up to 1979, where you met Richard Hart at the very same Tasmanian Puppet Festival that he says in his interview with me sparks his interest in puppetry? Yeah, well, let's see. It's, it was 79. Yeah, I'd been in Australia for about a year. Yeah, I started out out on the prairies, Fort Dodge, Iowa. Not very interesting. Everything was in black and white then. When I was 10, we moved to Phoenix, Arizona, and they had brought a puppeteer to the television there from Los Angeles because there was a really popular children's show. And they were trying to get, you know, the station was trying to get a share of the audience. So they brought Walker Edmonston, this puppeteer, out to do a show in Phoenix. And I loved it. It was fantastic. It's just wonderful character puppets and the manipulation and the voices. Oh, I just fell in love with it. And then one day he mentioned that he was going to make a personal appearance at the Jungle Park Zoo, which is only two blocks from where I was living. So I grabbed my little brother and we went to it. He came in, we saw him. But it turned out that my brother and I were the only ones that showed up for it. So I thought, oh, well, you know, he's not going to do anything. But no, he took us aside, introduced himself, opened up the suitcase, brought out these eight or nine different characters he did just for the two of us. It was fantastic. And ever since then, when, when a kid asks me a question, when I'm you know, unloading or loading or whatever, I always stop and answer the question because I learned that from him. I was so pleased he would do that. And then he moved, he shifted back to California. And a few months later, my family shifted to California. So I got to see him again on television. So I did high school in California. And then at the end of that, it was the Vietnam War was on and I didn't have a rich daddy. So I had to go into the army. I'd taken Spanish. I'd done well with Spanish in high school. Qualified as a Spanish linguist in order to try to avoid going to Vietnam. And the army in there, of course, sent me to Germany. And I got to Germany, fell in love with Europe. But then they announced that the company was going back to the States. Everyone was excited, except I wanted to stay in Everyone thought I was crazy. So I finagled a transfer to Italy. And I spent, oh, nearly four years in Italy, in the American army, in this sort of golden ghetto. But again, it was, it was weird. I mean, America's, America's a weird place. Uh, there were like 3,000 troops. As far as I know, there were only three of us non-Hispanics that learned Italian. Because everybody else just stayed at the base. And, you know, they had American stores and cinema and everything. Whereas I was out traveling around and meeting people and learning language. And I didn't see much in the way of puppetry because that was my period when I was more interested in the female gender. I, I didn't follow up with puppetry and, and Commedia was, was Commedia dell'arte, which I later loved. But at that time it was in recession. So I didn't even encounter it. Got out of the army, traveled around the Balkans, another obsession, Balkan history. Back to the States. And by then I'd have a point of comparison. I thought, oh, I gotta get out of here. This, this is not a good place to live. I went to work, <laughs> saved up my money, took the summer off and went up into Canada. I uh, took the next summer, went down to Mexico, Guatemala, 
Honduras, that sort of thing. And then I saved up my money with about three jobs. Also got the GI Bill, which is money from the army for having been in the army. You got money for education. I went to community college, which basically was defined as a high school with ashtrays. But it didn't harm my education because I sat up the back and read books the whole time. And then so I left the States and my wife, Jan, and I went backpacking across Europe, North Africa, and across Asia. It took a year to get to Australia. Terribly distracted. <laughs> I was into Buddhism then too, so I spent some time, a short time, living in a cave. <laughs> a Buddhist Dharma teacher in Sri Lanka, as you do, you know, you only live once. And then we came on to Australia. And in Australia, we went down to Nowra, a country town. It's Jan's home hometown. She hadn't seen her mother in years, so we spent a couple of months down there until I finally finished reading most of the nonfiction section of the local library. So I said, no, we got to go to Sydney. So I came to Sydney, and that's when I sort of knocked on and started taking courses and, you know, really started taking publishing performance more, uh, more seriously and taking all the classes I could find. And then the puppet festival came up. And that was in January of 79. And that was a turning point. I said, no, I was seduced by puppetry. Enough with the Buddhism stuff. I went to puppetry. And by four months later, I did my first professional performance for a fee. And then I did puppetry for 10 years, part-time, carrying a full-time office job, but with flexible hours. So I could go out and when the festival of Sydney was on and go to Hyde Park and see some shows. They had free shows in those days. And I did that for 10 years building up a repertoire, building up the shows, building up a reputation. It took up a lot of time. <laughs> I spent, you know, school holidays were spent in shopping centers doing, doing a show. So that continued for 10 years, but it was good for me because I'm rubbish at uh, marketing. So I use a word of mouth, which is great, except it takes a long time. It took 10 years to build it up until finally I just didn't have time for the office job. I had too many bookings. So I gave up the office and I took it on full-time and that was 31 years ago. God, oh my God. Yeah, it was <laughs> 31 years ago. I just don't like marketing. I'm an unreconstructed socialist hippie. And I just find that to ring up and beg someone to book the show is just soul-destroying. So luckily, I've never had to do that. I would do a mail-out once a year to preschools and libraries and vacation care centers, that sort of thing. But I never chased any work. But... Just luck. Being part of my career was luck. Just be in the right place at the right time and meet the right person, that sort of thing. It's all based on luck. You're also the only puppeteer in Australia, I think, well, we think, who tours with Commedia dell'arte hand puppets and hand puppet shows with Commedia dell'arte characters. I want to ask you about your travels in Italy in that four-year period and how you got started in finding out about Commedia, because Commedia is generally a mass performance. So how did you get started and who built these beautiful puppets for you and what has the response been to Commedia as puppets in your shows and over the years? Well, it's a form of Italian mask and puppet theatre started in the 16th century. Uh, the first written record was about 1565 and by that time they were already in Austria. Um, so it spread out from Italy into the rest of Europe. It was both mask and puppet. A lot of people don't know there was a puppetry branch to it. I've got 35 books on Commedia and hardly any of them even mention the puppetry side of things. I have one book that covers it well and two other books that mention the puppetry side of it. So it's not famous. It outlived the mask work completely. Puppeteers still doing it these days, and of course, in Italy. I, as I said, didn't have any exposure to it when I was in Italy. But back in the States, I started doing character puppets just for friends. And I would write down a few things to remember to do. And of course, the comedia works that way, that they don't use a script. It's all improvised around a scenario, sort of a list of things to do. And I started hearing about comedia. So I saw the connection there. So I started reading up on comedia. I went to Italy several times and Europe, traveled around and met puppeteers and caught up with old friends and that sort of thing for a couple of months. I think in 92, I went to the Unima International Festival in Slovenia, met a lot of puppeteers there and became friends. And so the Russians invited me. So I performed in Russia in 96 and then went on to Budapest in Hungary for the Unimo Festival. I didn't perform in that. And then we went off to a side festival in another town in, in Hungary. And while I was in 96, while I was in Budapest, I bumped into Mauro Monticelli. Monticelli family, a really old fan, six generations of puppeteers, probably seven by now. And he asked me for a tape, so I sent him a tape eventually. And they immediately came back and invited me to come and perform in Italy, uh, which is a bit daunting because, you know, they kind of know a lot about comedy. <laughs> 
So there I was uh, sort of faced with uh, showing it, take it back to its, its country of origin. And of course, it had to be in Italian. It was in the script, in, sorry, in the contract. It must be performed in Italian. And my Italian is fairly good, but I had to learn things like um, belly button lint. It had never come up in conversation while I was in Italy. So I took it around to a friend who runs a, a translation agency. And I'd worked with her. I'd done some favors for her with her. They have a Neapolitan theater group here. And I've done them a few favors. So she uh, refused to charge me. And she translated three of the three of the comedies into Italian. But because I improvise like they do, that's the first time I've ever written it down. And I missed out bits that I'd improvise sometimes. But luckily, I had a very, very generous neighbor from Napoli. And I'd run over there and drink coffee with him and, and work out the extra bits that I forgot to put in the, uh, the script. I turned over to the translator and put it all together. That was 98. And I also got to meet up with a dear friend, Paolo Paparotto, who does Puccinella. He lives in Treviso near Venice. And he comes the closest to the work that I do because he was in an area where it had died out. So he's restarting it, and he was interested in the Adlachino character, which is my specialty as well. So we became close friends, and he still refers to his spare bedroom as Dennis's room. He helped me with the translations, because my favorite joke in the show didn't work the first time. And I was shocked. So we figured out what had happened is with the translation, the story is Adlachino gets the magic potion Love potion, so Colombino fall in love with him. But he has an accident running into a tree and it spills all over him and everybody's falling in love with him. And Bragella, another character, comes on and Arlequino said, oh, I had an accident. Look at me. Uh, but he goes, oh, you wet your pants, which gets a really big laugh here. But it was translated as, ti sei bagnato pantaloni, which means you got your pants wet. It didn't work at all. So when I explained it to Paolo, he said, no, I fought la pipi adosso. You know, you, you wet your pants. So after that, I got the laugh, but it was a real disappointment when I, you know, I put it across. Here it comes. Here's my laugh. And it didn't happen. It happened in different places, but that could have been my pronunciation that brought on the, uh, brought on the comedy accidentally. But it was terrific, you know, pretty wonderful. And uh, I was performing at the Paolo Treviso, which is a city surrounded by its ancient walls. And they put the festival up on the walls of the of the city. It was fantastic. And then we went down the, the coast to Ancona, where they had big, it was the biggest children's festival in Europe, children's theater festival. And I did three different performances, three different comedies, all in Italian, and had a wonderful time and met all these people and got written up in the paper. At one point, I was more famous in, in Italy than I'm in Australia, because <laughs> I, I got written up in the national paper. Oh, just a wonderful experience. I had a wonderful time. I have to ask, though, what is the Italian word for belly button lint? Batufoli nell'ombilico. <laughs> Dennis, throughout your travels, what are some of the best places and festivals you have gotten to? And what did you pick up from the knees? Well, the 92 festival was called Arrivano del Mare. They arrived from the sea. And it was all based on traditional blood puppets from all over Europe. So that was just fantastic to see. What, you know, and the Russians were there as well because I'd already met them. Romanians and ah, French. It was fantastic to see all of these different ones. We saw performances. They set up stages with puppets, you know, on display. And that was that was another one where everybody ate together. The traditional puppeteers, they live on their wits, you know. It's, a lot of it is 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 improvised which is, of course, a commedia dell'arte specialty. So imagine having lunch with all these people, all these barbed comments flying back and forth, witticisms and all that. Of course, I'm only semi-fluent Italian, so I was sort of a half-wit at the table, but I really enjoyed that, the comedy of it all, and met some, you know, some really, really talented people, some amazing stuff. And yet it was great. They knew everything about their character, but asked them about a character two provinces away, and they knew nothing about it. I had no interest. They really specialized in their character. They had the dialect. A lot of them still perform in dialect. It's the strongest form of dialect theater in, in Italy is these traditional puppeteers. I mean, if they travel, they tone it down a bit. More towards standard Italian with just the accent. But the accents here, and that's part of the characterization, that people coming from, from a different place would have the accent. It would identify them. So Pantalone from Venice would come on. Well, to give you an example, in, in standard Italian, give me 100 lira, please. Damo cento lire, per favore. Lovely, musical. Venetian says, Dai cento franchi sai. Oh, Venetian, you know, all the jokes about people from Venice, all the stereotypes, and everybody knew it straight away, and you got your extra laughs. And that's where I have a disadvantage here, because 
the kids don't know these characters. I've got to establish them each time. Whereas Paolo and Treviso brings out Brighella, one of the secondary characters. And Brighella said, hey, kids, you know who I am? And they all said, yeah, yo, Brighella. I don't have that. So I have to establish who's who and have Pantalone loom over Arlecchino to show that everyone knows Pantalone is the boss, Arlecchino is the servant. So I have to establish that each time. Another big difference was that their puppets can be really big. The ones in Bergamo, the head is solid wood and can weigh up to four kilos and you carry it on your index finger. Whoa. I tried it. <laughs> yeah, I tried it. I didn't last very long. It was really, really, really hard. But they're sort of icons performing. They're not people as such, so that it was enough. You know, they didn't have to worry about manipulation. Whereas I've got to manipulate it really, really well to hold everybody's attention. Um, so I don't have that that icon show. You know, mine's quite different to what they do. Other differences, the audiences are different. They're much more patient. You know, you see, see a puppeteer get up and talk for 15, 20 minutes to these kids to tell them about what's going to happen in the puppet show. If I did that, the kids would be climbing up the walls. But no, they sit through it quite patiently. And of course, they really enjoyed the show, laughing and that. I remember seeing a show in, in Bergamo, it's up in the north, and it had a really heavy accent. I mean, really heavy. And this local guy, Chopino, he's got three goiters because they have a dietary uh, deficiency up there. When I saw that show, my 80% more or less comprehension level of Italian fell to about 30%. Because it was Bergamo. In fact, they can't they can't perform more than about fifty kilometers from Bergamo because people can't understand them. And Bergamo is the the birthplace traditionally of Alecchino, no? Yes, that's right. And, and Brighella, yeah, yeah. They um, emigrated from uh, Bergamo came under the sort of inland province of Venice, of Venice, Venetian Empire, and they had a lot of immigrants come down from Bergamo and Brescia down to Venice to work as porters. And they became Venetian and they made up the Zani, the, 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 the comic servants. The next question I had for you regarding the Commedia puppets was who made your Commedia puppets? There was a very talented artist in Newcastle, Ross Brown. He runs uh, Dark Side Masks and he studied Commedia in the United States. Uh, he made the puppet heads. He made a set of masks. My wife, Jan, my late wife, a wonderful seamstress as she learned. She grew up with her auntie, who was a seamstress, and she, she made beautiful puppets, beautiful puppets, you know, the little jackets and things she could do. So she did the bodies and the costumes, and everything was double-hemmed because she didn't like maintenance. So once a year, we go through the puppets and she'd do any repairs. But basically, she kept it all going. It was amazing. So she made the costumes for both the mask work, puppetry work. My background, of course, in puppetry, but... No one's heard of <laughs> the fact that there's Commedia puppetry. So if I wanted to take it to the schools and do Commedia dell'arte, I had to do the mask work. So I had Ross's mask that he made. I hired four different teachers. If you haven't had one teacher, you end up looking and sounding like you're one teacher. So I had four different teachers to get a look at. It took about oh, 10 months, I think, altogether to put it all, all up. So I devised a... Uh, so in the show, I would do five of the mask characters. And then I'd do a very little bit of puppetry, not even the stage, just the two puppets up in front of me, just to give them an idea, show the interaction. Because the trouble with doing the Commedia solo is that Commedia is a group thing. So I have to use the audience. So Pantone comes out and begs money off, off students, and Capitano falls in love with one of the teachers up the back, that kind of thing. So they made up. <laughs> they made up for me not having a troupe. But I couldn't show interaction between the characters. And that's where the puppets came in. So I could have Pantalone and Arlecchino together there and show them how that worked and give them just a bit of a background for the puppetry. So it's a little bit of puppetry, a lot of mask. And then I was asked to, by the Italian education department, could I do something for primary? So there I did, I showed them the mask. I performed only one mask, but then I did a half hour comedy in the booth with the, with the puppets. And that worked out well because I had five different comedies. So I could come back the next year. We could review the masks and they get to see a different show. Normally in preschool and in primary school, you got to wait six years for the, all, all the kids to empty out, you know, and have a fresh batch. But I was able to go year after year, which is great because you got to know the teachers, you get to know the kids, you see them growing up, they recognize you on the streets. It's, it's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful stuff. I did develop 
I go to the high school show, which I now only do once a year for a particular school that's um, is based on the Commedia dell'arte puppeteers' lives that has that for their Italian studies. The show is fitted in, of course, with Italian studies, and the Commedia, of course, fit in with the drama curriculum. So when drama was part of the curriculum, I was very busy. And when Italian was oh, flavor of the month for a couple of decades, mainly because the Italian government was paying the teachers' salaries. But once the, the global financial crisis hit Italy, of course, everything went bankrupt and they stopped uh, paying the teachers. So my bookings just went straight down, straight down. That's my comedia experience. Dennis, Commedia is a street theatre, as is a lot of the theatre you have created. What advice would you have for performers who are developing a show that is outdoors? With venues closed, I think this busker-style and outdoor performance style will be the first thing to come back through social distancing measures after COVID. So what are your thoughts on how people can capitalise on that and engage their audience outside? Yeah, well, performing outdoors, the first thing is, first consideration is weather. Always weather. You need to have, you know, a strong stage. I've got, I have an indoor stage for the comedia, but I also have an outdoor stage that I can tie down. Uh, it won't blow over. Also find that uh, if you're busking, you may or may not be able to use amplification. And voice training is, the, you know, you've got to do voice training. You can't be dependent on batteries and microphones and that sort of thing. And some councils, you'll have to get permission from them to busk. But I found it was wonderful. I did, did a fair amount of busking in the beginning because it gave me an audience. See? So what to me is funny in my study or funny in my rehearsal room may not be funny to the general public. So busking was a great way to, to develop those skills and working with an audience to see what works and what doesn't. I collected money. I don't think I made a great deal of money, but I had a business card and I gave out the business card that people were interested. And that got work with birthday parties and, and preschools. So I definitely recommend that you have publicity material you can hand out. Yeah. And watch out for traffic. Watch out for traffic. That's brilliant. Particularly as someone who isn't a marketeer, you're going back to those basics of the business card and the promotional flyers to get that word of mouth. We're going to take a little break. So you are listening to Talking Sock with One Orange Sock and Dennis Murphy. We'll be right back after the break. Make sure you hit subscribe and follow at One Orange Sock Productions on Instagram. More with Dennis in just a hot second. This is Philip Miller. I'm Richard Bradshaw. I'm Sue Wallace. And you are listening to Talking Sock. Talking Sock Podcast. The one orange sock production. This is the number one podcast for puppetry in the country. Your one-stop shop for all things puppetry arts and practitioners. The number one puppetry podcast in Australia. Follow this podcast. We believe that podcasts should be advert-free. So if you like what you're listening to, there's a new way to help support our podcast. No monthly subscriptions, just a simple tip to share your kindness and to help us get by. Follow the link in the podcast notes or at oneorangesock.com to buy us a coffee. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening to Talking Sock. Hello, darlings. This is Ronnie Burkett, and you're listening to Talking Sock, my favorite puppetry podcast. Welcome back. You are listening to Talking Sock with Pete Davidson and Dennis Murphy. We've been talking about Comedia de Latte puppetry, but now, Dennis, it's time to talk more about your amazing life and the cacophony of great stories along the way. Firstly, it's been said that you're a great lover of coffee, and with all the travel that you have done, to this day, you still collect and travel with a coffee pot in your suitcase. Is this true? Oh, yeah. yeah. Caffeine is my my drug of choice. (laughs) I've always liked coffee. I learned to drink coffee in Europe. And when I first started touring, you couldn't get decent coffee in the country town. It was all instant. They would pay $5,000 for this big cappuccino machine, and they would only use it to steam the milk. And a friend of mine was a a salesman for it. And it would drive him crazy because he'd go back six months after selling the thing and discover that they were using instant coffee. He said, look, it's cheaper to use real coffee. So I just started carrying my own machine. The coffee pot collection, most of it's just pots that I've ruined by putting them on the stovetop and getting distracted and walking away and having them boil up. But yeah, I did a lot of um, inter-Balkan uh, history a lot and the Ottoman Empire, the Turks. So the Turk, like the Turkish coffee. So I've got quite a few beautiful little pots. I didn't mean to start, but the collection was just an accident. But carrying my own coffee, I need my, uh, I make my coffee in the morning. I've What's the coffee it. method of choice? I've got a gaja espresso, Italian coffee. 
I carried in a sewing machine case, nice and solid. I can carry it in there and brew it up in the in the hotel room. Or when I was paying off the mortgage, I would have in the pub room. Uh, for a long time, I I was trying to pay off the mortgage, so I took Queensland and stay in the pub rooms for fifteen dollars a night or a hundred dollars wow. a week, and trying to pay it off. But I had my coffee machine, and I had my you know, you had to have a clock radio, of course, and an alarm, and a reading lamp, and lots of books. So that's how I paid off the mortgage. That's the other collection that you have there. Your other collections in books. What else do you collect apart from coffee and books? I'm sure there's more than one collection now that you've got these other two. The books are kind of overwhelming a bit. Probably two and a half thousand of them, I suppose, by now. Because I get different obsessions. So I, you know, went through my Balkan history obsession. Of course, Italian culture, because I'm doing the comedy over the years. And then Nasruddin Hoja's story. He's an Islamic hero that you find him from Turkey, even ran across him in Western China. And I was interested in that. Always thinking there'd be a story in it. I never got anything out of the Balkans as far as a story goes. Nasruddin Hodges' stories are too short. I couldn't, I did research into it, but I couldn't put it together. Like I've got quite a good section on vaudeville and another on British uh, music hall. And so I get these different obsessions and fill it up with books. I've got a lot of books, of course, on comedy writing. That's how I'm making my living. And I review them. I've got a spacer that moves across as I, as I review each book <laughs> so that I've done the whole shelf. Because I'm a great highlighter. I highlight things, you know, interesting things in the book. I write my own index at the back. As you come across some idea, oh, yeah, that'd be good. Then I go through my scripts and see if I can put that new concept into, into one of the scripts and make it better. I'm constantly reviewing the books. Wow. It's tax deductible, so why not? <laughs> I want to ask you about your approach to puppetry and humor and your script writing. When you are developing a show, it's clear that you're doing so much research and that you've got that obsessive mind that just wants to know about different cultures. But what do you take inspiration from in terms of other writers and other performers? At the moment, I'm looking at some British stuff. Morecambe and Weiss were a British double act. And they're quite, quite good in television in the 60s and 70s. And they're very close to the comedia in the absurd things that go back and forth, very fast, cross-talk. That's great stuff. And I just discovered last week Harry Worth, who's an English comic, who does some, he doesn't do it, but his writer has some very interesting stuff he does with language. So I'm picking up a few things. And I'm constantly looking at, you know, how the mind works, you know, how we get these ideas and where they come from. And there's no, you know, it's not an angel whispering in my ear or anything. There's nothing metaphysical about it. It's all brain chemistry stuff. The, the nerve cells in the back of your brain or bringing forward something that then gets manifested out into the universe, you know, as a, as a, as a show, you know, that started off as just a chemical reaction to the base of your brain or how you, with enough performance, you stop using the front of your brain, the prefrontal, pre, prefrontal, hang on, dentures, prefrontal cortex. If you've done it enough, if it shifts to the back of the brain, it becomes second nature. So if you know your character really well, and you know your script backwards and forwards. When you actually go out in front of the audience, you don't have to think about all those things. You can be in the now and really, you know, attain flow or be in the zone, whatever you want to call it. And the puppet comes alive. And that's when you get, when I get the best stuff is the ad-libs that happen. So with, with the five half-hour comedies I do with Arlequina, the family ones, I started out as a 25-minute show. But by after six months, it was 30 minutes because all these things would come up buying extra stuff. Had to keep track of it because sometimes you'll say something and then forget you said it. Or someone will say, oh, it's, you didn't use such and such a line. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I should have written that down. So a lot of it's done that way. My favorite way of working is to just sit and imagine, imagine me and the puppet there on stage and just going through it. So I don't have to think about script as such or manipulation, lip control, none of that. It's just seeing it. And the words come. And that's the best way work i found it's certainly easy it doesn't always work i cannot emphasize enough how hard this stuff is there's the the theory of the ten thousand hours of practice to mass you can master anything with ten thousand hours of practice and i kind of really believe that 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 it takes that to be able to do these things sort of second nature so you're concentrating on the actual performance now and the audience's reaction to that performance, where you are with the audience. An actor knows what's happening on stage. A performer knows what's happening on stage and what's happening out in the audience. But I have to emphasize, it's really hard, okay? It's really hard and it takes a long time. 
one of my mask teachers had this terrible habit. After the warm-up, he would sit and talk about how when you put on the mask, it takes over. You become the mask. And, you, you know, and it lives and all this. Which is true. Eventually, often, it can happen. But it's certainly not going to happen the first time somebody puts a mask on. And you could just see the disappointment in the, all the participants' faces because they put on this mask waiting for this magical thing to happen. And it doesn't happen. But it takes a lot of work. A lot of work. But if you've got the passion, you'll do it. You've got to have the, you know, you've got to have the drive. You've got to have talent, you've got to have the drive, and you've got to have luck, which sometimes I leave out when I'm talking to drama students. But luck comes into it an awful lot, an awful lot. Fair point. It's time for our segment called The Geek Out, in which my guest and I mention something that has been getting us through social isolation. So my geek out for this week is another Disney Plus series called The Imagineers, but more specifically the history and the invention of audio mechatronics back in the 50s and the 60s that were installed as attractions at Disneyland. Once you move past all the self-serving back padding the show does for Disney itself, you do get this really great insight um, into sort of the unsung heroes who innovated in extraordinary ways to animate Disney cartoons in a live space. And actually, uh, Dennis, it brings back all those those vaudeville-style performances that you see um, with, you know, the, the mechanical carnival-style uh, puppets it's definitely worth a, lot, a watch. I've really been enjoying it. But I want to ask you, Dennis, what's your geek out for the week? And I'm going to curate yours a little bit because I know you have that incredible book collection on top of your coffee pot collection. I have to ask about this. How many puppetry books do you think you've got in there? And what would be the book that you would geek out over time and time again? But that won't stop you from also providing a geek out of your own here today. Oh, I've got a collection of puppetry books. or not really probably that many, maybe 20 or 30. Uh, mainly look at history, uh, the history of puppetry, rather than making, because as I said, I'm, I'm not a maker. I'm no good with my hands. That's why I became a puppeteer. What I've been doing, I really miss performing. I mean, I really miss performing. You know, I had a I had three test audiences lined up for, for these four new characters. And after the, the first one went really well, and the other two got cancelled because of corona. So to keep my spirits with performing, I'm reading up a bit on the old days of vaudeville and British music hall. And it reminds me of how easy I've got it. Because when you compare to what they went through, my God, the, you know, the, uh, the long jumps, the long trips between performances and cold train stations, changing trains in the middle of the night, they really had it hard. And you read about, you know, people like W.C. Fields who would practice juggling five hours a day. <laughs> you know, it just, ah, it makes you... Makes you realize you haven't got it quite that bad. Uh, when I need a break from reading, I've got the box set of The West Wing, which was an American series about a liberal Democrat president who knew, who knew what a war crime was, which, of course, puts the whole thing into a fantasy sort of category. Um, but it's just nice to be around. It's really well scripted. There's lots of fast talk, lots of wit. And that gives me sort of break from it. At the same time, feeling I'm you know, with other people and interacting more or less and rehearsing. I'm still rehearsing. I'm punching up scripts, not rewriting from the very beginning. When you've got a script and you perform it for a while, you unconsciously will change it, alter it a bit, the character, but you get a better laugh. So I've been spending some time punching up the scripts, bringing them up to date with the way I perform it. So that's taking up a fair amount of time. And then, of course, rehearse it because I've got to learn how to, how to do it. Rehearsing involves my rehearsal room up one end i've got the camera and the monitor and then i've got my staging down the other end fairly simple staging and books all around of course very expensive insulation so i will <laughs> i record the skip three to five minutes then i'll watch it a couple of times on video the rushes then i will cover me up on the screen and watch it with just the puppet to see if there's dead dead time you know then the puppet's not looking alive. Do that a couple of times. Then I'll cover the puppet up and look at me and see if I'm uh, sympathizing with the puppets too much. If I'm, if the puppet's laughing and I smile, or the puppet leans back and I lean back, that watching for that sort of thing. Then I'll watch it a few more times. So it's just the two of us, and it just takes hours. You know, you're talking about a five-minute skit, and you're looking at it, you know, twenty-five times. It adds up. It adds up. So that's what I've been doing: uh, rereading a lot of stuff, punching up. And 
trying to improve and use the time creatively. It's, I mean, free time like this is really such a privilege, such a privilege. But there's still not enough hours in the day. I want to know more about vaudeville. And if I was someone who's listening to this episode, I think I would too. So where would people go to find really great information on vaudeville and that style of performance through research or through other, you know, which performers should we be looking out for if we were to go and do a YouTube search? Yeah, I find the best thing is to find a good biography, show business biography. Mm-hmm. A lot of them, <laughs> it's terrible. It's all about their, how many children they had and the, the son's drug problems and all that. You need to find a book that really talks about the process, how this person developed. Uh, there's one really good one about Tommy Cooper, who was a famous comedy magician in England. And in that book, the author would mention so and you know, he's a re- he was influenced by so-and-so and he picked up this one. And so as soon as I mentioned someone like that, highlight it, go straight to YouTube, see if I can find some background about it. Now with YouTube, it's so much easier than it used to be that you can call up these things. When I was studying in Indonesia, I would have killed to have a video camera, you know, to get the movements, you know, but I didn't didn't have one now. Of course, I can just sit on my study and call it up on YouTube and see it. Very frustrating. So it's a lot easier now, but that's certainly where I'd start with the with the YouTube and start with the books on it. There's heaps and heaps and heaps of books and then find something on YouTube to get an actual physical, see what they actually did. I ask about vaudeville because I'm so excited to ask more about your ventriloquism. It fits so perfectly with the style of puppetry that you perform. Where did you learn it? How long did it take? Uh, you mentioned that it's really hard and I can see that you're process of rehearsing with these guys takes some time. So what are the tips and tricks you can share with us when approaching ritualism? We never actually had event performer on the show up until now. So you're my first. Yeah, it's, 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 it's different. It's different to puppetry in that you've got the split. You have to, you have to differentiate between yourself and the puppet, which you do in voice and manipulation, the different exercises you can do to, to separate it out. You've got to be really different. You need Lip control, but it's not all that important, really. Uh, for a long time, I did. I had Lady Hawkins, a character who would open official things and lose track of where she was and go through a person trying to find the notes. But I did a deadpan, and my energy went into her. And the number of people after a performance would tell me what good they never saw my lips move. But of course, they didn't look at my lips, they looked at the puppet. So as long as you've got really good manipulation and an interesting puppet to create that illusion that there are two separate people here, they're not, you know, they're not, that they're not connected. The structure for the, the the script writing, you get a lot of you know set up punch, set up punch. You have to break that up. A lot of the ventriloquists are just bang, 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 bang. That's quite quite boring. You need to find some. As with anything, you've got to come up with something unique, something different. It's always that way in all in all the arts, of course. So when I do things like at one point I have I'm working on a pizza, fucking pizza, and I'm trying to convince it to do the jokes, and I end up doing all the jokes instead of the, the puppet. Or another one working on what he's a stand-up comic from another planet, speaks gibberish, and I have to translate it. So he's got his microphone, he puts a microphone at the my mouth. And he thinks he thinks the jokes are fantastic. And of course, they're really bad, but he falls all over. He's laughing so hard and it's infectious and all the kids laugh as well. Just different. You got to come up with something original, you know, to, to stand up. A lot of the stand-up comics you see now, you know, they come under the category angry and ranting, you know, and it's just that too is a security thing, a self-confidence thing that you go, you go fast. Bang, 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 bang. And I had that too. When I first started with the comedian, I had to draw it back. So I was using video. The video is very flat. So I watch it afterwards and think, oh, it's not very exciting. It's not, you know, I said, put more energy and have it come out of the come out of the set, you know. And I ended up with too fast a delivery. It had to be had to be pulled back. And that that was a that took a long time. And it all takes a long time. I've been working doing the duo acts four years. I reckon I got another another year before I'm really happy with it. I've got some acts that are good. I grade them. So I've got A ones that are good and working. And I've got B that needs maybe a final punch up and it needs test audiences. And then I've got C ones that are just in draft form. I've got F ones, but I deleted all those and burnt the hard drive. So we don't talk about the F ones, but that's what it takes again, you know, hours and hours and hours and hours. But if you enjoy it, you know, then you got, and you got the drive to do it. There's three components really when I look at the whole sort of process of performing puppetry. 
triumph of modicum or two of success is you have to have some talent. You got to have drive, you know, the passion behind it because it's going to take hours. You better enjoy it. And you need luck, which don't always like to talk about, but luck is a big part of it. To be in the right place at the right time, it happens all the time. I've been really lucky. I mentioned Morgan, Morgan and Weiss. This is the duo act. And when they first went into television, it didn't work because the writers they brought in all these extras and they sort of got swallowed up and you couldn't, you know, their, their best act was a duo. And there's a whole group, you know, and you couldn't tell who's who. But then as it happened, as luck would have it, they had an actor strike and they couldn't have those extras. So it was just the two of them. But that's what they did best, that duo act. And once they did that, the show, they were going to bring to cancel. But once they got down to the duo act, their specialty, then they became famous and, you know, ran for years. So I think luck comes into a lot. But you have to be open for the luck, you know. you got to be ready when an opportunity comes to be able to, you know, to grab it with both hands and recognize it, that it's an opportunity and grab it. I've known puppeteers who, you know, their, their, their marketing was stronger than their show. So they made a living that way more from the marketing of the show than the actual show that they did. And if you've got enough drive, sometimes you can overcome not having a whole lot of talent because you just keep at it. Eddie Cantor was an American entertainer from the 20s and 30s. And he didn't really have that much talent, but his drive was such, his energy was such. He was really quite successful. <laughs> and people said, what does he do? <laughs> they couldn't quite figure it out. But the drive carried him, you know, and maybe luck. When you look back on your career in puppetry, what stands out for you as the highlight or a really great moment for you? As far as research goes, it was the Arino del Mare Festival that concentrated on the traditional puppet, traditional street theatre puppets. Um, that was probably the most inspirational I got. The, now, the Hobart Festival of Puppetry, that was, that was good because that took me in that direction. But for research-wise, I had a wonderful time <laughs> in that festival in 1992. Because I learned, learned a lot from about the comedy and that and met people who are still dear friends today. Going to Russia was quite interesting. <laughs> it wasn't quite what I expected. It was weird. <laughs> the, uh, under the Soviets, you people weren't allowed to... To have to talk to foreigners, you know, it was a corrupting influence. So I went once under the Soviets, and then next time I went for the puppet festival. That they'd been free for for four years, but they still had that wariness of foreigners. So there, I was there for 10, 10 days. The, the friends I knew it was wonderful, you know, hugs and kisses and kitchen table drinking vodka. But everybody else was sort of distance, you know, just didn't talk to me. And they knew I spoke a bit of Russian because I gave a little speech at the at the opening. And I had a translator with me. So, you know, there's no question they could talk to me. They didn't have to speak English to do it. But nobody asked me anything. If I asked them a direct question, they'd answer. But they just had the standoffishness. You know, go, oh, it's usually a puppet festival. Oh, you did puppet. What did you do? What did your father? You know, and you interact. No interaction. But then, half an hour before the end of the festival, suddenly I'm having my picture taken with everybody. And they're asking me all sorts of questions and telling me about what they do because it was safe because they were leaving in that last half hour. And thought, ah, that's interesting, because I'd forgotten they did that. As someone who's been doing this for 31 years, do you think that vaudeville, puppetry, and commedia latte have a place in Australian contemporary entertainment? Yeah, well, the reason that it's around is because it works, right? It still gets laughs. You know, on the agricultural show grounds, people are still laughing at the show. So as long as you can get it over, the vaudeville term, get it over, that is, as long as the audience are, Enjoying it, laughing, it'll always be there. I think I have an advantage in that live performance is much more impressive than, you know, watching TV or, you know, YouTube or something like that. The people remember it. And, you know, you ask a kid what he saw on TV three days ago, they couldn't tell you. But he remember the show you did last year when he streets you, you know, sees you in the streets and greets you. So I think it has an impact. The problem will be to getting in front of an audience. Once you, you know, because it's finding that audience. The, the school stuff is slowed down, is, you know, with the teaching to the test and that sort of thing. The arts have been so long neglected that most teachers have forgotten that you can get, you know, a performance to come in and, and teach a particular subject. But I think 
there's no real competition between a live thing and something that's just on a screen. And even studies have shown you retain more if you read if you read it in a on a hard copy than if reading it off a screen. You remember much more of a hard copy. They don't know why, but they have it's been shown to be true. So I shall hold out to be a, a missionary for for live performance. <laughs> I love that. Dennis, last question. If you had a chance to say thank you to someone, your hero in puppetry of sorts, who would it be and why? Ooh, there'd be a list because I've had so much help along the way. Because I don't, like I said, I don't make the puppets. So my wife, Janice Edwards, made beautiful puppets. Uh, Ross Brown in Newcastle with the mask work. Sydney Puppet Theatre, so Steve has done, done things for me. Richard Hart has done some brilliant things for me as well. Inspirations through Walker Edmonston when I was 10 years old. It was amazing. Mel Blanc, the voiceover, the voice of Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck. Wonderful voices. He's, he's always been a hero. Dario Fall, the mask artist. Absolute genius. I got, I got to meet him once. I shook his hand. I haven't washed my hands since. <laughs> the inspirations, you know, the people who have helped out Jonkel Temple, she uh, she was the weekend manager at the art gallery for 30-some years. But she's a great, she's seen a lot of theatre. She can pick out when I do a thing, she'll say, now look, it's just a nitty-gritty thing, but you need this, you know, just there, you know, and she tweak it. So and Steve are the same. We have a little group get-togethers and have lunch, and often I'll bring along something I'm working on and get some constructive criticism. I don't know what I do without them. And the video camera is my best friend. It's really, really helped a lot because you just can't see it from the outside. You can't see your own show. There was some actor, I've forgotten his name, but at the end of his career, they asked him what his deepest regret was. And he said that he couldn't go out and sit in the audience and watch himself perform. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. Okay. Well, Dennis, we are out of time. Thank you so much for talking sock with us today. You can find Dennis at www.murphyspuppets.com.au and on Facebook by searching Murphy's Puppets. Thanks for listening with us today and make sure you subscribe for more great puppetry arts and practitioner interviews. I've been Pete Davidson, that puppet guy, and we'll talk sock again soon. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you. Good on you, Pete. Thanks for listening. Now we want to hear from you. Each week we'll post a series of questions related to every interview. Join the conversation on Twitter at TalkingSockCast. You can help us bring puppet power to the podcasting world by hitting subscribe, liking our socials, and telling your friends. Like us on Instagram at One Orange Sock Productions and check out our episode blog at oneorangesock.com. You can support our podcast by pledging to us on Patreon. Your support helps fund our audio mastering, interview transcriptions, and much, much more. Find the link in the podcast notes and earn yourself a shout-out on our socials. Head to our website at oneorangesock.com or talk to us on Twitter to see how you can show your support. Our music is composed by Elizabeth Maniscalco and our cover art is by Chad Barnier. Without them, this podcast wouldn't be possible. We'll be back next week with another great episode here at Talking Sock.